If you are watching from home this morning, a very warm welcome to you. I'm sure Brian has already welcomed you. We are delighted that you're joining us through our live stream service. And of course, for everyone who's here in the sanctuary, especially our baptismal family, welcome to you. We are thrilled and excited and could not possibly be more excited for you. We are just delighted. Just delighted. If you have been with us over the last few weeks, you will know that we have started a new sermon series entitled Developing a Courageous Faith. And over these last few weeks, we have been slowly working our way through what is known as the best sermon in all of history, the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we're coming to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, continuing that study as we are reading verses 17 through 20. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you have tuned in this morning and have not been used to tuning into First Press, We take the word of God very seriously. So if you're intending to join us over the next few weeks, it would be a good idea if you have a Bible, follow along with us. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. About 18 months ago, I received an email. And for the life of me, I cannot remember if I shared it with you at the time. And if I did, please forgive me. The email said this. Earlier this week, a truck delivering copies of Roger's Theosaurus overturned at the corner of Haywood and Pelham. This resulted in the truck distributing much of its load across the highway. When police arrived, they reported that witnesses were stunned, startled, aghast, stupefied, bewildered, surprised, awed, dumbfounded, nonplussed, and you get the sense of where we're going with that. And I thought that was remarkably funny. But I would have to say that what I find funny and insightful and witty and clever My wife, the lovely Miss Ruth, does not always share that opinion. And in fact, more often than not, she simply looks at me, sighs and rolls her eyes. A little like some of you are doing right now. It's that kind of thing going on. Now, some things are funny because it's the way we put words together. And each of us would agree that words matter. And words matter for a reason. Because words can bring great joy, great encouragement. They can strengthen us. And over these last few weeks, that's exactly where we have been in the Sermon on the Mount. And you will remember, of course, that the Sermon on the Mount contains what is called the Beatitudes. 
we've already looked at what Jesus said when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And that word righteousness, we're going to look at the end of our study this morning. Because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I imagine, at least in my own mind, that the people who heard Jesus deliver the Sermon on the Mount heard the message that was so utterly compelling, so engaging, so deeply personal, that the only way they could respond was to listen with intent, long to know more, and prayerfully begin to say, Father, what is there here for me? What is there here for my life. How does this impact and transform me? At the end of chapter 4, before you come to chapter 5, Matthew tells us that Jesus was preaching across northern Galilee, in fact, up into Syria, and thousands were coming to hear him. And if you go to the site of the Sermon on the Mount today, the traditional site, you could easily get several thousand folks on that site. And here is Jesus beginning to speak at a level that would be compelling, that would begin to help them ask those deeply personal, fearless searching questions. And that's exactly where we've been over the last couple of weeks. And today we are coming to Jesus talking about the law and what does that mean? And what I need you to do this morning is this. Begin to roll up your theological sleeves. Pay attention. Because what Jesus is about to teach here was absolutely controversial in its day. And yet it describes for us the essence of the gospel and what it means to have a life transformed and renewed and refreshed by the love and grace of of God. So let's begin verse 17. When Jesus gives these now famous words, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now the first question you ask when you come across this passage is, what does Jesus mean by the law? Now if you were brought up in first century Galilee, Around the Sea of Galilee, there were several smallish fishing towns. The town of Capernaum wasn't that small. In fact, it had around 8,000 residents. It was a major tax center. There was a synagogue there. In fact, the uh, Roman troops were had barracks right there in Capernaum, the major trade route north. So not small, in fact. And if you were brought up as a good Jewish boy or girl, You were brought under what was called the law. 
And in essence, it meant this, and I'll try not to go into too much detail, but to give you an overview, it meant this. That on a Saturday morning, you would get up with the rest of the family, you would put on your best clothes, and if you lived in Capernaum, you would head to the synagogue. If you lived in Jerusalem, you would go to the temple. That was your upbringing, your heritage, your background. And there you would be taught about the law. And the law, back then and still today, for many folks with a Jewish background, when they hear the word the law, they think of the five first books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on. And you begin to think, okay, uh, I think I missed Exodus there. Please forgive me. So if you're watching and really paying attention, I probably did. And in the law you would be taught that it's important to obey the laws of God. It is a reflection of your commitment and dedication to him. And those laws would say this, that whenever you visited Jerusalem, especially on the feast days and the holidays and the days of great uh, ceremony, you would go to the temple, you would purchase a small lamb or a dove or a small goat, and you would pay for that, then you would take it to the priest, and the priest would offer it up. They would sacrifice it on your behalf. And that was a mark of your obedience. That was a mark of your commitment to the things of God. But as you buy a small lamb or a dove or a pigeon, you would, of course, run your fingers through its wool or its feather. You would look at its eyes. You would check the case of a dove, its beak. You would check the legs. You would want to make sure it was without spot or blemish. You would never offer up something that was kind of second-hand or marked or impure. You would never take that for a sacrifice. And so there was a ceremonial system that involved sacrifice. You'd also be taught that you were to wear certain clothes at certain times, certain food at certain times. Some animals were clean, some animals were unclean. You would never offer up an unclean animal in the temple. And so that was the religious ambiance of the day. It involved not only the law, but within the law you had two or three sections, one of them being the ceremonial law that I've just described. The other section would be the moral law. And when you think of moral law, think of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not bear false witness. Honor the Sabbath day. Keep it holy and so on and so forth. And so when Jesus is talking here about do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What was he talking about, fulfilling the law? Well, let me tell you how the law is fulfilled. Throughout Old Testament, of course, the law dominates. When you participated in keeping the law, you were considered a good Jewish boy, good Jewish girl. As parents, you would teach this to your children. But over the years, the law got slightly twisted. And it was no longer about the heart offering a sacrifice and repentance of sin. It became about, did you keep the law? 
Did you offer a sacrifice? Did you wear the right clothes? Did you say set prayers at set times? Are you only eating particular food at particular times? And so it became reduced to rules and regulations. And if you could keep to the rules and the regulations, you were considered someone who was obeying the law. But the difficulty with the rules and regulations is this that it does not touch the heart. It cannot transform the heart. And where sin would dwell in the heart of humanity, the sin wasn't being dealt with. The outward, the external rules and regulations were being adhered to rather than a deep abiding intimate relationship with God. And so the difference is like chalk and cheese. One was external, one was rules and regulations, the other was about a relationship with God that was powerful, transformative, focused on love and grace and prayer and following him, a hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so when Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, let me explain what he meant. At Calvary, when Jesus stepped forward, he offered himself, the blessed Son of God, without sin, as a sacrifice on our behalf. There could be no greater purity. There could be no greater sacrifice than offering that which was without sin. And so Jesus offered himself on behalf of the sin of humanity. And the perfect offering was made. And therefore he fulfilled the law. And that's why as Christians today, we don't make our way to the temple in Jerusalem to offer up sacrifices because the scripture teaches one sacrifice was made for all forever. And when Jesus was at Golgotha offering himself, he was doing so willfully, intentionally, out of absolute unconditional love and grace for us. And when he said, it is finished, he meant the law had been fulfilled. The perfect sacrifice had been offered. And the love and grace of God could offer forgiveness for all of humanity. Now please understand the significance of this. Go a little deeper in your thinking. At Calvary, Jesus actually accomplished the salvation of humanity. He didn't just make it possible. It wasn't potential. It was finished. Accomplished. He actually saved souls at Calvary for every people and tongue and tribe, offering it up for all of humanity. And so that's what Jesus meant when he said, I've not come to abolish it. I have come to fulfill it in all of its fullness. 
And therefore, there is today no need for us as Christian people to wear certain clothes at a certain time, say certain prayers multiple times a day, eat only certain foods, offer up particular sacrifices at feast days and holidays, because it is finished. That's the heart of the gospel right there. And then Jesus takes it a step further. And if you look down, in fact, you can see it, verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And of course, it was accomplished at Calvary. And then jump down to verse 20, because I'm conscious we don't have as much time as I would like to go through the middle section. And please feel free to read it on your own. But at verse 20, he continues... For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we think these opening verses were controversial in their day, these final verses in that section are equally controversial. Because if you grew up as a young Jewish boy or girl, your parents and your grandparents would point out the Pharisees and whisper to you who they were and why they were important. And if you grew up to be like the Pharisees, then, then you will be someone. Because they were considered several levels above Ordinary, everyday people. These were the people who were the professional religious leaders of their day. Now let me ask you to hold that thought and come on over here and say that kind of thinking is no longer happening today. Now, you know me well enough to know that from time to time I have a little fun and I'm somewhat mischievous. And I would have to tell you that I have a personality profile. I am someone for nines and unders and nineties and above. I'm usually in trouble with the group in the middle, but nineties and below, I'm considered someone. Nineties above, I'm also considered someone, but in the middle, I'm usually in trouble. In fact, a mom told me recently she was giving her wee one a hard time. He was seven or eight, and she said to him, unless you behave, I'm going to tell Pastor Richard. I thought, well, thank you, Mom. Now he's scared of me and won't come near me. I thought, how wonderful. Here I am, the ecclesiastical police. But, however, I know what she was saying. And that's what's happening with the Pharisees. They were put on a pedestal. And notice exactly the words Jesus uses. Remember at the beginning of our time together, I said words matter. They mean something. And he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the word I want to focus on is righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Now, in your mind, imagine a coin with two sides. And if you're watching at home, this isn't the time to mute. This isn't the time to rewind or fast forward or go and make some coffee. Focus as we move to the, to the end. If you imagine a coin and on one side the coin says justification and the other side of the coin says righteousness, that will help you focus. The word justified 
appears throughout Scripture, especially, of course, in the New Testament. And if you're familiar with the book of Romans, it comes up again and again and again and again. And justified in layman's terms, which is kind of my level of theological acumen, I I find it helpful to think of the word justified to mean just as if I had never sinned. Fairly simplistic way to remember it, but it's a helpful way, just as if I had never sinned. And when God looks at his children who have responded to his love and grace as they encounter it in the gospel, they are in the eyes of God justified, just as if they'd never sinned. Because in responding to the gospel, they respond in repentance. Father, I have sinned. I have sinned badly. I've messed this up. I've offended others. I have offended you. Please forgive me. Transform me. Renew me. Let me walk with you. Profound sorrow for repentance brings justification. The other side of that coin is righteousness. And let me explain what I mean. Because When you are justified, God looks at you, as we've said, just as if you've never sinned. Not only does he wipe away all past sin, all present sin, and all future sin, he sees you as justified, cleaning it all away. But not only does he see you simply as clean, not only as neutral, not only a starting again to justification, he adds righteousness. Now let me explain what I mean. When Jesus says your righteousness must surpass those of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he means this, that when God looks at you, all of you, heart, mind, soul, will, disposition, character, personality, not only does he see someone who's forgiven, not only are you declared without sin, but forever you are declared as righteous. And when he looks at you, he sees Christ. Now that's a remarkable thing that takes place. Not simply neutral, not simply forgiven, but the very positive, he sees Christ. And that's why, that's why in the book of Romans chapter 8, we read these words. For what the law was powerless to do, remember rules and regulations was power to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So he condemned, and so he condemned sin in sinful man in order, here it comes, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. That's what's going on. We are then justified by him. Not something we have done. We are made righteous and declared righteous by him. He gives it to us as a gift. 
And in a couple of minutes, as we bring our service to a close, our final hymn will reflect that. In fact, it's a well-known hymn. It's probably the most popular hymn of the last 20 years in Christ alone. And in the second verse, Keith and Christine Getty, who authored it, got it absolutely right when they say, In Christ alone, who took on flesh. Fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness. Do you see it? He declares you righteous. Now, over the last couple of weeks, as we've been working our way through Sermon on the Mount, at times I've touched on controversial and sensitive issues. And I've ended up the sermon with a challenge. And so here's my challenge This morning, as our nation begins to open up after COVID-19, more and more churches are opening on Sunday morning, more and more people are attending, schools are opening up, theatres, cinemas are opening up, restaurants slowly but surely beginning to get back to normal. Some of us are still fearful still concerned, and rightly so. We still need to be careful and cautious and prayerful. But here is my challenge for you this week. Whatever you are facing, whatever regrets about your past, whatever fears and concerns you have for the present and the future, please understand this. Take it away, lock it into your mind, apply it to your heart that he is profoundly, deeply, intimately in love with you and he lavishes on you his love and his righteousness. And how do we know that? Because it is finished. It is a accomplished. He has drawn you into a relationship with himself, and regardless of what you are facing, however hurtful, however painful, however regretful your past, you can absolutely rest in him this week. And so that's my challenge for you this week. Go back over this passage. Take your time. Read it line by line in all that you have heard and then rest in him and rejoice with a deep, profound sense of gratitude and thanksgiving. For in Christ alone my hope is found. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture today. Thank you for all that it teaches us. Thank you for the compelling nature of the words of Scripture and the impact they have on our hearts. Father, enable us, please, to walk close with you this week and let us do so with thanksgiving and gratitude, with deep and profound thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.